0: Missed the show. No worries. On point and on the podcast. The disaster in BC is nowhere near over. The desperation is reaching a pitch as food runs out. We've got farmers working around the clock in desperation to save their animals, which are drowning. What happens when Canada's third biggest egg and dairy producing province gets wiped out by water? Well, the whole country is about to find out. So we'll talk about that. Joe Biden wants to build back better, and despite all the pleasantries he's got for this country, he's made no secret that he's going to build back better at Canada's expense with protection measures that will crush our auto sector. We just negotiated a brand-new trade deal. How did electric cars not get protection from this protectionist threat? And once you join mob life. Can you actually really quit? We'll talk with an organized crime expert about the release of a well-known Hamilton mobster who says he's a changed man, but was also pegged as the second highest ranking underling in a major New York mob family. Let's get talking. This is
1: On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio.
2: I think we both think we're at our best when opportunity, equity, and justice all coincide and uh and like they're the core values of canadians and
1: uh, the united states so this is one of the easiest relationships
0: right okay so why are you screwing us with your protectionist measures alex pearson with you on this thursday november 18th great to have you here with us so uh, we got the file we got the photo op we got what we wanted the smiley photo op you know biden loves us canada's besties with american Again, uh, who cares? That's what I say. The only headline that actually matters coming out of the Three Amigos meeting, which is now underway at this hour, is can Trudeau get Biden to back down on these protection measures that are actually much worse than anything Trump did to us, believe it or not. And these are protection measures that will be a massive hit to our economy and will basically block us out of the electric vehicle market. And uh, so during one of the earlier photo ops, it was uh, funny because all of a sudden I heard Bob Fife, of the Globe and Mail's voice, pop up. And he actually managed to get a question to the president asking about this issue. And, and literally, if you can even understand it, Biden mumbled out some kind of something. Are you going to consider a car vote for Canada, given the fact that our industries, all the industries are so integrated? We're going to talk about that to some extent. We're going to let. No, that didn't happen. Uh, (laughs) But he was asked a few times about, are we going to have an exemption? And then he got a little snappy with the media. It was clear he was irritated. And then uh, said, I I don't know. Which sounds really promising. So why does this matter? We always talk about this. Why does this matter? Why am I sitting in my car? Why should I care? Well, you should care because auto experts, experts in this country make up $43 billion of our economy. So it is a massive part of both Canada and Ontario's economy. Because cars matter, jobs matter, investors matter. All of these things matter and they will all evaporate if Trudeau can't stop Biden from pushing through with these Buy American protection measures that in part, and the most damaging of them, is this tax incentive for Americans if they buy American-made cars and American-made batteries when it comes to electric cars. And then you think, okay, well, why, why is this even a threat? I mean, we spent two years, an eternity, it felt like, negotiating this new trade deal under Trump. Oh, why didn't we get protection from this, you know? I mean, once upon a time, this country had uh, an auto pact with the United States that allowed us to integrate our markets, and it gave us our fair share of the auto sector. Everything was working tickety-boo. And yet here we are, after dealing with the last president— and a new president that's sitting on one side saying, oh, we're such great neighbors and allies, and yet uh, his protection measures threaten to wipe out an entire industry in this country. And for all of those who assumed, oh, Biden will be better for Canada, were clearly so blinded by their hate for Trump that they ignored the countless warnings during the U.S. election when Biden was talking about this, when he was talking about these protectionist things he'll do, and, in fact, I think he's worse than Trump. I mean, Biden's not our enemy, but he's certainly not our friend. He's not a nice, nice guy. He's a protectionist president who cares about protecting America. And ideologically, Trudeau and Biden are two peas in a pod, right? So they're both building back better on this same green agenda. And you'd think that Trudeau should have an advantage with our neighbor. But that's not how it works when you're dealing with protectionists. And at the end of the day, uh, Biden's a politician, and he's worried about holding on to power. And his ratings are in the gutter, and they go into midterms next uh, November. So he could lose control of Congress. He could lose control of the Senate, maybe both. So is he worried about Canada? No. And he's also got a very far-left ideological wing of the party that lives in a very green utopian fantasy thinking that all fossil fuels should just simply disappear today. And so Biden's got to keep them happy. And how do you do that? Well, the easiest thing for Biden to do is just pacify them by hitting Canada, canceling projects like the Keystone XL, something that would probably come in very handy now, right now, as President Biden begs OPEC for more oil. And uh, on Wednesday, as Trudeau was in Washington ahead of today's meeting, I mean, Biden was meeting with the same mission or governor, the Michigan governor, we are now taking to court trying to stop her from shutting down Line 5, which would plunge Ontario and Quebec into an absolute energy catastrophe. So if Biden is our friend and we have such an easy relationship, you'd think he would have quashed, you know, this little feud months ago because friends don't let friends freeze to death. That's one thing I think we should agree on, right? So the fact that Line 5 is even allowed and been allowed to... to you know, bubble into this bargaining chip, tells us how concerned our besties are about our interests. But, like Trudeau, Biden's also betting his political future and the future of his country on all things climate, so he can say all the nice things he wants about us, but it doesn't serve his interests to buckle to, to, to Trudeau. And, um, you know, while the protectionist policies will break the spirit of existing deals in place, his press secretary came out today earlier and made pretty clear uh, she doesn't see and they don't see anything wrong with what they're doing.
1: We don't view it that way. Uh, I think it's safe to say. Uh, I would say that in our view, uh, Amr, the, uh, the uh, electric vehicle tax credits is uh, an opportunity to help consumers in this country. Uh, it's, it's not the first time that there have been incentives and tax credits to help uh, consumers, lower prices for consumers, help incentivize a move towards a clean energy industry, something that is good for
0: our climate. Certainly, yes, good for businesses uh, here in the United States. Mm-hmm. In the United States. Not here. And so sadly, it seems today that national interests take a backseat to political gain. And so Biden can be seen by the base being the greeniest guy on the planet and cornering the electric car market. Hey, that's a big political win for him. So we won't hear anything for a while about these meetings. I suspect they'll probably be, you know, kicked down the road past the midterms, uh, which, of course, does nothing to help but give us stability, which we need. And for me, this is not a partisan issue. Because in, in my view, it is not in our country's best interest for Trudeau to fail at these talks because we're all going to pay the price for it. My question, though, is why wasn't this built into the free trade deal? Like, how did this get skipped? I mean, this is a government obsessed with climate. You would think electric cars would have been top of mind when they were negotiating the auto sector part. But it is very clear it was not a thought because it wasn't even brought up.
3: Over the last two days I've been able to have um, FaceTime discussions with farmers and some of them are in their barns and some of their barns are flooded and you can see the animals that are deceased and it's heartbreaking this is an especially difficult time for our livestock producers
0: uh, animals need feed every every day and our feed order was supposed to come a couple a couple days ago when this all hit and couldn't get here so. We need feed well everything needs feed and everything needs water for sure so um it would be detrimental to the life of our birds if we don't get it oh it's just so heartbreaking all these images i am such a softy for animals so it just breaks my heart um you know because i know the sun is out and it's shining in bc right now but bc's lower mainland is nowhere close to climbing out of this disaster and there's still a threat of more flooding and so you see these pictures which are, are quite haunting you know you've got food shelves completely empty, uh, the roads and rail totally still collapsed, and then all these farmers just desperately trying to save their animals. I mean, we're talking chicks and chickens that had to be left in barns. You've got calves and cows and horses, and uh, we already know from the uh, agricultural minister that thousands have died. And now there's the issue of, you know, those that have been able to survive now face issues like starvation uh, because food can't get through, or or they've got injuries or disease from contaminated water, and of course they can't get vet care. And these are areas of the Lower Mainland that are expected to be underwater for weeks. And so these exhausted farmers really don't have any idea of what their new reality is going to look like because they can't figure it out until the water goes away. Holger Schwichtenberg is the chair of the board for the BC Dairy Association, but he's also a farmer himself, and he joins us now. Good to have you.
2: Yeah. Good afternoon.
0: I can only imagine how absolutely exhausted you and all these other farmers are. I mean, you, you deal with dairy issues because that's kind of what you're the face of and the voice of, but at the end of the day, you're also a farmer and you have taken in over 40 cows into your barn because luckily you have dry land. But, I mean, can you kind of characterize for us here in the east of what the situation is like?
2: Yeah, um, I can't imagine what it's like. You know, we're sitting here, our farm is dry, we have room for those extra cows. I can't imagine what it's like to look at your farm, to look at your animals, to have five or six feet of water in your whole farm, and then you have to leave. And you take your family with you and... As, and a lot of them were able to resp- uh and um, have most of their animals go with them, but some people had to leave animals behind. It must be absolutely heartbreaking to see a life's work and then have to walk away from it.
0: Yeah, I friend. mean, as much as yeah, yeah, I mean, Holger, as much as these animals are, are working animals and and some are food animals, supply animals, uh, there is an attachment to them. I mean, I, I owned horses, uh, you know, growing up, and so there's an attachment, and, and when they're in trouble, you want to help. And the sad thing about cows and horses is that they tend to run back to their barns and not away, you know, from the danger. And so there's so many challenges for these farmers to get these animals out. And then all, you've got all these barns full of chickens and chicks. And farmers don't know how or what they've lost in these barns. And And so, you know, the totality of the destruction to this particular dairy and egg industry, I mean, it could be incalculable.
2: Yeah, incalculable and... But I think what's important as producers, you you sort of try and tackle one problem at a time. And then the first one was was to get as many animals out of the affected area as possible. And we've managed to do that. And then the Mm -hmm. next step is to try and take care of the ones that were left behind, to get them shelter, to get them food, to get them water. And at some point, if the water recedes enough that you can actually get them out of there and that then the farmers can start the task of cleaning up and getting their farms up and running again and getting the animals home. But uh, one step at a time, I think, is important to try and keep in mind.
0: Yeah, and when you're in it, you are in it. So they're probably not even thinking about this right now because it's all out survival mode at this point. But, you know, for for people here who might not be familiar with this particular part of the world, I mean, this is the third largest chicken-producing and, and I think, dairy uh, in this country. So it's not a small thing. And locally, certainly, as we hear, farmers have to dump you know millions of liters of milk, uh, you know, and we know that eggs are going bad. Uh, locally, supplies can't get out, but it, it is something that Canadians are going to feel.
2: Well, I, I think uh, I'm not so sure about Canada, but certainly the province of British Columbia will feel it. And and as producers, you know, we're going to work hard to try and get the situation back to somewhat normal as fast as we can. And we are taking baby steps. Some of the roads are open again now. And someone like myself, they are able to pick up my milk tonight and get that Mm -hmm. to a processing plant. So we maybe haven't turned a corner yet, but I think we're trending in the right direction. But we still have to look after those animals that uh, are still trapped on the Seamless Prairie. We need to look after them as best we can.
0: Yeah, and it's cold and there's still a ton of water there and vet care is not easy to come by. Um, especially, uh, you know, the consideration that these animals can't can't drink that water because it's so contaminated. No. So, you know, and then and the other problem that you have, too, and you alluded to it earlier, is to convince a cow
2: that the barn that she spent her whole life and she has to leave it now. And yeah. that's something they've never had to do. And then you got to leave your barn and walk through four feet of water to do it. That is that's not easy to convince a fifteen hundred pound animal that that's the best recourse.
0: Yeah, when they uh, lock in those hooves, uh, they aren't moving. And then you have to think no. about all those babies and all the rest of it. I mean, it's just such a, a it's such a heartbreaking and daunting um, uh, feat. Then there is the issue that the water is going to be there for a long time. It uh, could be a couple of weeks before we start to see any actual farm area land. And so, Holger, what is the biggest challenge? Because as I also understand, the infrastructure system to make sure that um, the milk is safe and all those things, that's whole gone. So what would be a, a window that you're looking at if you even have thought this far ahead of when farmers may be able to get back on their properties, fix their barns, get the land turned over, get their animals back into business, and start processing again?
2: Yeah, Alex, again, that is something, you know, we're taking it one step at a time. I'm making sure that the animals that are here on my farm are well taken care of. I've told the mm-hmm. farmer that, owns them, do not worry about that. I will take care of them as long as is needed. You need mm-hmm. to take care of your situation. And I, I'm not thinking timelines yet. I'm thinking day to day. Are we going to get feed for them? Are we going to get grain for them? Do we get bedding for them? And those are all things that you know, yeah. I'm going to try and do, as, as are the, my fellow farmers who do have extra animals on their farms. We're just going to take this day by day and tackle each problem as it comes along and try not to think too far ahead and, and feel overwhelmed.
0: Yeah, I, I I hear your side of it because it's just so daunting. And then there's the other side, the supply side, where it's saying, "Come on, come on, hurry up!" And it's like, who you know, it's a push and pull here. Some, you know, one of the questions that's starting to come up more and more is why weren't these farmers warned sooner? I mean, we knew the rains were coming. Why weren't they warned sooner, and that way they could have gotten these animals up to a higher land sooner?
2: I'm not going to speculate on that one. What we have. I mean, seven inches of rain in 24 hours. I've got friends on the prairies. They don't get that in a year. So 24 yeah. inches in an hour is, is, almost, is unimaginable. And then the Nooksack River breaking its banks, then the Sumash River breaking its banks, and then the highways being washed out. I mean, sort of everything came together at once, and it came so quickly. I don't think anyone was prepared. And I, and I think the other thing what you have to recognize is that moving, for, like some of these dairy farms have got 400 animals and 400 places Move 800 animals in a hurry.
0: That yeah. is,
2: you know, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's almost like, let's say 40, 50 years ago when the average dairy farm was 40 or 50 cows. That was one task. This is a much more daunting task to move that many animals at once. And to have the trucks and trailers available to do that to move thousands of animals in a hurry, it simply is logistically can't be done.
0: Such a tough, tough troubling time, and uh, certainly the, um, you know, the trouble's not uh, over yet for any of you. So uh, just know that you, know, you have friends in the East. We are all watching and, and wishing and hoping for better and easier times, but uh, I thank you so much for your time on this. I know you've been working around the clock and doing your part, and I know that uh, you had a lot more work to do, but uh, very much appreciate your time on this.
2: And thank you so much for reaching out to us. We appreciate
0: that. Thank you. Better times ahead and prayers to you. That is uh, Holger Schwestenberg, who is the chair of the board for the BC Dairy Association. But he is a farmer himself, and so he is doing his part and helping out, which is great. Alberta's uh, pitching in. Everyone's trying to help, you know, do what has to be done. And certainly the next 24 hours for a lot of these animals is going to be sadly do or die. We are
1: a little bit concerned about the zero emission vehicle uh, mandates uh, or rebates uh, brought forward in the current uh, by the current uh, uh, proposal uh, in Congress right now uh, that uh, could have a real negative impact on the auto path.
0: That is the prime minister, I think, being a little cautious uh, in his concern. But uh, no question, this is the main concern for our country right now. And so the meeting of the three amigos sounds cute but it is one of the most consequential meetings the prime minister is going to have with President Biden. Because you know while most people see Biden as the good guy, a friend, an ally, uh, just like Mr. Trump, he's a protectionist and maybe even more dangerous to this country because his measures are a very direct threat that could destroy our auto sector. And he's trying to push these laws through right now, which break the spirit of long-held agreements between our countries uh, that let us diversify our auto markets. And we export $43 billion worth of cars every year. So cars matter to this country. And what Biden's proposing is to give Americans tax incentives that, hey, if you buy only American-made electric cars and electric batteries made by Americans, you get some money. And if Trudeau can't talk Biden down from this, Canadians will lose jobs, investors will leave and our exports could evaporate. So these are consequential times. Jerry Dias is national president of Unifor, the largest private sector union in Canada. Great to have you.
3: Pleasure is always mine.
0: All right. So you had a seat at the table of um, the renegotiation and the free trade, uh, you know, debacle that we just went through. So I think a lot of Canadians are wondering why on earth are we worried about these things now? And so why are why aren't we protected in that long negotiation from this very thing?
3: Well, there's no question. We covered this type of exact ground in NAFTA, allowing Canada uh, to export about two points. 3 to 2.6 million vehicles a year uh, without having to worry about any tariffs. Uh, But the issue of the U.S. giving specific incentives for electric vehicles wasn't covered. Now, of course, the major concern is that, in my opinion anyway, that that Biden is trying to wrestle back uh, the protectionist ground that he lost to Trump. Uh, Trump went around the United States pointing to shuttered auto plants saying, you see, this is as a result Of terrible trade deals. And frankly, he was right. But Biden um, is now, in my opinion, will take it even a step further to show American workers that, look, he is truly uh, the warrior for working class people and is serious about bringing jobs back to the United States. So uh, if that means that he's going to scrap with different countries in order to do that, I think he's prepared to do it. But What he has to know is that he's going to be leaving a lot of American workers uh, behind if, in fact, he proceeds uh, with his Buy American uh, uh, policies and major incentives uh, for American-built EVs.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're already in court uh, trying to fight the Michigan governor um, from shutting down line five, which would be utter calamity for Ontario and Quebec. It doesn't get a lot of attention, Jerry, as you know, because it's not all that sexy. But without line five, which is 60-something years old, we don't have power. We run out of energy that, I mean, it's a disaster. And so he's already kind of sidling up to the Michigan governor, which is a concern, and we're already in court dealing with that. Is there nothing that can be done? I mean, is this Not breaking, um, you know, auto packs that we have with the United States? And is there a ground for Trudeau to actually stop this?
3: Well, there's a couple things. Number one, the the avenue to deal with these types of disputes are at the World Trade Organization, but look, they take years. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a, a, a situation where you file a complaint and you're in front of a panel and decisions are made. So, but it's not exactly like we have nothing to offer here either because If you take a look at what we have abundance of in Canada, Mm -hmm. it's the raw materials that are needed for electric vehicles. So they need aluminum, they need nickel, they need a magnesium, they need cobalt. They need things that we have and that we should be leveraging because why would we frankly give up our number Mm -hmm. one manufacturing industry without one hell of a fight? So the issues that are quite straightforward is the United States, aside from their own market, Ship more vehicles to Canada than any other country around the world. Trade in auto is balanced. We ship more vehicles to the United States from Canada than they ship from the United States to Canada. But about 85% of all parts that go into a Canadian assembled vehicle comes from the United States. So why would they want to miss with with frankly uh, a structure that's balanced? And it's not as if go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: Well, I was just going to say, but as you know, a lot of this is political. And for Biden, he's, you know, fighting for his political life right now, ahead of next year's um, um, midterms, which, you know, they're always in a cycle of elections down there. Um, You know, and he's got this very left side of the base that, you know, wants certain things and obviously America is moving further and further into this protectionist um, you know, avenue. Uh, So he's fighting for his political life. And frankly, he's going to put his own political interests first. And and clearly with these protection um, ways that we're seeing they're going to put America first, and I look at this and say, "Well, it's damn time sure that we make Canada first. We've got the Ring of Fire. We've got to get these deals in place to get it developed. Because to your point, we could rule the world if we can just get, um, you know, developing things like the Ring of Fire, which would, in fact, allow us to corner the market on, you know, building all things electric."
3: Oh, you are absolutely one hundred percent correct. If there's one thing we can learn from this. It's why can't we utilize a policy in Canada to put Canadians to work? We have a hundred yeah. billion dollars a year in procurement, hundred billion. Why mm-hmm. in the world would we outsource that type of work, including the trains that VIA just bought from California built by Siemens? Why wouldn't we do that when we have facilities in Canada that can build these same trains? So we need to learn something about procurement policies and government's commitment. So, I'm not surprised by what the U.S. is doing, but what we need to do is at least take a page out of their book and look to implement similar policies. Look, Buy America is nothing really new. I mean, it really came in hard uh, through the Obama administration, and if you take a look at the amount of, of, of U.S.-based contracts that are awarded from the U.S. Uh, from the U.S. government uh, to Canadian companies, the numbers are minuscule to say the least. So this is nothing that's really new. But what they're trying to do to the auto industry is fatal, and we can't let them away with it. You're going to have to fight tooth and nail if in fact, the US tries to mess with Canada's number one manufacturing industry.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not surprised to see these things too. But I do think Canadians to a point are blinded by the reality of who Joe Biden is because of their hate for Trump. And the, the reality is, he's no better than Trump. In fact, he could be much, much worse for this country in the very Quick short term. So how do you see Jerry this thing uh, playing out? How long between negotiations? How long is this kind of insecurity going to be um, you know sitting on our doorstep?
3: Well, you would hope it would get resolved sooner than later with the uh, with the meeting of the three countries. but uh, but look, you would have thought that things would have been a little smoother as it relates to the relations between Canada and the United States with the Biden administration, you would think it would be better now that we have an adult in the room of the White House. But as I said earlier on, I'm deeply concerned about the wrestling back of the protectionist argument and how far Biden is prepared to go. So look, all has to fight fire with fire. We can't say, oh, geez, put up our hands and say, we don't have anything to fight with because we're so much smaller than the United States. We have so much of what they need in order to implement in order for them to implement their strategy. And if we play hardball, my guess is there'll be a lot of blowback. There's a lot of states, northern states especially, that their number one trading partner by a country mile is Canada. And if some of those doors start to close, then my guess is that it's going to be a different argument, more than there is today.
0: Just quickly before I let you go, Jerry, I mean, I know you have a close relationship with the prime minister. I mean, obviously, you're sitting at the table and and having a say in things like uh, free trade deals. Are you in his ear? Are you telling him he's got to be tough? And do you have confidence that he is going to park his ideology, park friendships, and 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 understands what's at risk here?
3: Kim and I spoke on Tuesday for about a half an hour. So let's just say that he completely understands uh, where our union's uh, mind is at as it relates to the Biden administration and their proposals. He was completely 100% versed on the issues and the challenges, and to me was in
0: a good fighting mood. I sure hope so, because this is not really a partisan issue. This is about the country, the well-being of our country, our economy. And we cannot afford to have things go wrong. Let us stay tuned. Jerry, appreciate your time on this. And uh, we'll hope for the best and uh, just keep following it. Appreciate it.
3: Pleasure is always mine. Have a great day. Thank you.
0: That is Jerry Dias, who is the national president of Unifor. And so we will uh, wait and see and uh, just hope for the best and push for the best. Great to have you here. So a well-known Hamilton Mafia boss uh, is getting day passes, despite uh, the fact that there is concern that he might not be ready. We're talking about a guy named Dominic Violi, who's considered the second-in-command of a New York Mafia family who was jailed back in 2018 for several charges, including drug trafficking. So he was given six years back then, and now, here in 2021, he's got uh, day parole for a six-month test period. Now, he can't go live at home with his wife, And uh, he'll have to report, I guess, to a halfway house. And prison officials during the hearing had expressed concerns, you know, I'm not sure this guy's ready to go, given who he's associated with, and because of his controlling and influential behavior over other prisoners. Let me bring in Stephen Matelski to this conversation, a uh, criminology professor over at Mohawk College and author of the book Underworld Stories, Chronicling True and Organized Crime. Good to have you, Stephen.
1: Thanks so much for
0: having me, Alex. So, credit where it's uh, due. Um, Adrian Humphreys over at the National Post has been looking into this issue. And this is Domenico Violi, if I understand it. He is uh, old-school, traditional organized crime, says the uh, correction system. His dad, Paolo, Paolo, was a Montreal Mafia boss who was murdered back in 1978 by a rival associate in uh, the Rizzuto family. So these guys are not small players.
1: They are not at all, and, uh, you know, Dom and his brother Joey, they grew up in the mob. And, you know, part of the reason Dom and his brother are in jail in the first place is purely reminiscent to the downfall of his father, Paulo, in Montreal in the 70s when he was the underboss of the Catroni family. And what happened with his father, Paulo, in the 70s is, unbeknownst to him, he allowed a Montreal police undercover officer to rent the apartment above his gelato shop that also doubled as his mob social club and headquarters. And over the course of six years, uh, surreptitious recordings were captured of not only the inner workings of the Montreal mob, but the New York mob. And it led to a big crime commission in Quebec called the CECO. And Paulo went to jail for a year. He didn't testify, but that stigmatic um, you know, allowing somebody from the outside to come in and expose the inner workings of the family, kind of what we're seeing playing out with Dom Violi right now.
0: Hmm. Huh. Interesting. And so some of the concerns, and I I mean, I can't say I've never heard of this. I mean, some of the concerns that they had in releasing him was, you know, that he was using his authority and control, like he's a first time in jail, and yet he had a lot of influence over inmates, you know, getting him food um, and doing things for him. But they also, according to um, Adrian's, uh, you know, reporting, they intercepted several suspicious money orders last year that were, um, you know, going to different inmates inside the facility. But according to the reports, the money orders were all brought to the same person who just happens to be a known contact of Dom uh, Violi. Um, and so there there are concerns that maybe it was business as usual uh, in jail. I don't see how business would stop it if you're in a mafia and that would go for anyone, right?
1: Absolutely. And you know Dom came into jail. He was part he was a target of a four-year RCMP led project called Otremens. That was in partnership with the FBI. And really in a nutshell Alex what that involved was it was a real world mobster from New York City who entered in a seven-figure contract with the Canadian government to wear wire for four years and tape record his friends in the mafia and Dom happened to be one of those friends and two months before the project was taken down one of those wiretap conversations had Dom speaking with the mobster wearing the wire about how he had made history becoming the first Canadian to become an underboss, which is second in command of an American crime family. In this case, the Todaro crime family in Buffalo. This is something that, you know, you, you wouldn't make up uh, with Dom's history in that life. Um, so it was really significant. Him going to jail, he wouldn't have just had street credibility. He would have been the guy.
0: The guy. Yeah, the guy cooking up the steaks and having the nice meal while everyone else gets to eat cheese sandwiches, uh, or am I just uh, reliving my the scenes out of uh, the Sopranos? But you know, so he's out on day passes. This is supposed to be a six month uh, trial, but given uh, you know the decisions of our parole boards, I have no doubt that he will likely uh, you know have freedom back sooner than rather, but uh, sooner than later. But uh, you know, where does this then go? Because I don't think once you're in, and certainly if if he, this man is considered. A as high high up in the organization, as you say, and that's significant. He's not just going to leave the job. It's not like you just stop. And so it's just, uh, generally speaking, these guys just go back into doing what they were doing.
1: I've always said this before, Alex. There is no retirement plan or Freedom 55 in the mafia. You you know, when we saw what happened with Angelo Musitano a few years ago, when he tried to distance himself not only from his brother, Pat, but from the mob saying, this is in my past, you know, mm. it, it, that's fine and dandy. But, you know, once you're in, you're in by the gun, out by the gun with a lot of these uh, organized criminals. And they, they fully know that going into this kind of life. There's no leaving or quitting or retiring. It's, it's a lifestyle for them.
0: Yeah. And business is good these days. I mean, we've got money laundering at record levels. We know drug uh, trafficking. Human trafficking, etc. All that stuff is happening. It's all part of organized crime. I mean, it's expanded. It's certainly not done. And so, does uh, does this guy Violi have a role? And will he um, be as powerful? I mean, is it is the power there that he would have had years ago?
1: Well, the problem right now is that that four-year-old Tremens project involved uh, the crime family in Hamilton and crime families in New York City being recorded by the RCMP's prized asset, the mobster who they flipped into an agent. Mm -hmm. The stigma of having those recordings very, uh, you know, akin to Dom's father, Paulo, allowing the undercover operator to record the inner workings of the Montreal mob, Dom kind of did the same thing, you know, unbeknownst to him that his friend, this made guy, that was another thing that happened, that the RCMP's police agent became... An inducted member of the mob in a Hamilton hotel room so the agent's street cred went through the roof and Dom felt more comfortable divulging information to the agent who he didn't know was wearing a wire but this agent grew up as a mobster in the mob life too it's that stigma of exposing the inner workings of the mafia not just in Canada but the state. and Dom apparently beat out 30 American mobsters for the, for the job of underboss and then this big project gets taken down and the inner workings of you know the Hamilton and New York mob are exposed.
0: So what's his future? Is he a mark man? Well when you look back, I guess they all I guess they all are, right?
1: Well, in April of twenty twenty one, Dom was up for parole the first time. And from my yeah uh, professional experience, it's very rare that an inmate is not released due to the parole board's Concern over Dom's safety. It's typically sort of a reverse onus that a person is not released on parole because of the risk they pose to the public and public safety. In this case, you know, the the correctional service and the parole board recognize that if we release uh, Dom in April of 2021, you know, there's significant uh, fear that he may be victimized.
0: Yeah. Oh, boy. Never, not not necessarily a career choice I would make, but uh, I always find it very, very fascinating when one of these guys get in or get out, and then to see you know you know with the story behind the headlines. So, I guess we'll wait and see, um, you know what happens in the next little while. Stephen, always appreciate your time. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much, Alex, for having me.
0: Steve Amtelsky, that is uh, his name, criminology professor over at Mohawk College and author of the book, if you're looking for a good read, Undercover Stories from the Underworld of Law Enforcement. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point here on Global News Radio.